been in a series on the book of Philippians, but coming out of our three days of youth camp, one of the things that I love to do on the Sunday following youth camp is to pick something from youth camp and bring the whole church together in on what we were looking at, studying, praying through. And so Psalm 73 this morning is one of those passages. It was a morning devotional, actually our first day together Thursday, we had a devotional time in Psalm 73, and I trust that this will be both a reminder and encouragement to the youth as well as anybody who was not able to be a part of youth camp to get a little window into the types of things that the youth and the chaperones were looking at. So Psalm 73 this morning. Well, the theme of youth camp, as you see from the shirts and the logo, is none but Christ. And the Bible makes clear, we know this by experience, we can give our hearts to a lot of different things. And from beginning to end, there's this encouragement, there's this push in Scripture to have our hearts undivided for the Lord, not not given partially to the things of this world, not given partially to sin, but not, not diversified, but wholly and exclusively to the Lord Jesus Christ. None but Christ. And in Psalm 73, we hear this a little bit from Asaph at the end of the psalm. Psalm 73, verses 25 and 26 say, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. This is a beautiful statement of a satisfied soul. But if you've ever read Psalm 73 before, you know that Asaph doesn't start talking like this. He doesn't start in this satisfied place. He actually starts wrestling with the goodness of God. And he was, he was struggling with God and God's dealing and what was going on in the world around him because he was, he was lacking the bigger picture. Uh, recently, our, our family took a road trip. Uh, we were driving on I-95 going north, I think we were in South Carolina, when all of a sudden the map app on my phone says you need to get off at this next exit. And I was thinking, well, that, that's kind of strange because we've got over 100 miles to go and I believe we're on I-95 all the way. Like why all of a sudden is it telling me to get off this exit? It's, and as I typically do, the phone must be wrong. Uh, Apple Maps must be lying to me. It's confused or there's a glitch. And sure enough, we found out that there was a car wreck ahead blocking all the lanes. And so it was rerouting us correctly around the wreck. And what seemed strange in the moment actually became clear when we had the bigger picture. And this is true in our relating with God. Without the bigger picture, things seem strange to us. Uh, some things we would even say, well, that's just wrong. That shouldn't happen. And we can begin to turn on God just like I turned on my phone. 
and begin to accuse and say, well, God must not be powerful. God must not be good. Why is God allowing this? And so Psalm 73 was written as a wrestling with the goodness of God. So for much of the psalm, Asaph is considering, he's considering life, but actually God is out of his purview. And the psalmist begins to turn on him. And when God, though, comes back into view, everything changes for Asaph. Things that were troubling to his soul when he gets the bigger picture with God, all of a sudden he becomes satisfied with God. Like we heard in verse 25. And so this psalm is preserved for us today so that the same things might occur in our hearts. So that God might loom large. That he might come into view and that our souls might be satisfied In him. And so, if you have your Bible open to Psalm 73, let's read together this progression of a uh, psalmist being satisfied in the goodness of God. Truly, truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death, their bodies are fat and sleek. They're not in trouble as others are, they're not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say... How can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease, they increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly, truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes. Oh Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, I was 
pricked in heart. I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, the desire for both youth camp and the desire for this morning is that we would not just read about the satisfied soul, that we would not just read about your goodness, but that we would be satisfied, that we would be amazed, gripped at what you have done. That, Lord, we would contemplate Your works and we would give You praise for all of Your excellent greatness. We thank You this morning. Lord, satisfy us. Lord, captivate our gaze. Lord, lift up Yourself in our eyes. Come into our purview that we might know and be able to say, yes, truly, God is good to His people. We thank You in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, Asaph is the writer of this psalm. He's a singer and a leader of worship in Israel. And he begins this psalm by wrestling with the goodness of God. Wrestling with the goodness of God. He states in verse 1 that God is good to his people, Israel. And this is his starting point, and he states it emphatically with the word truly, or some versions say surely. He says, I know this is the case. I know that God is good to his people. And he states it emphatically because he's been struggling that it is so. So this is both in a statement up front, but also we will see it is his conclusion Sometimes people struggle with why it is that bad things happen to good people. That's one kind of struggle. That's not the struggle that Asaph is having. That's perhaps a struggle you might struggle with from time to time. I know I do. That's another passage and another sermon. But this morning, the struggle that Asaph is having is not... How can bad things happen to good people? But why do good things happen to bad people? Why do the wicked prosper? That's what he's wrestling with. And it's such a wrestling for Asaph. He says in verse 2, But as for me, 
my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Asaph was jealous. He was envious. Timothy Keller writes, he says, envy to envy is to want someone else's life. It's to feel not just that they don't deserve their good life, but that you do and God hasn't been fair. I mean, it seemed to Asaph like the wicked were getting the better deal. And perhaps this morning you can relate. Perhaps you know someone who's cheating and is getting ahead and is not getting caught, and yet while you are trying to be honest, you stay behind. Perhaps you work with someone who's lazy, and yet they make more money than you do. And you think, how is God allowing this to continue? Perhaps you're a child and you're receiving some sort of discipline or consequence and yet your sibling who you say, hey, no, they're the ones who really did the wrong, they seem to be getting off scot-free. What in the world is going on? This is the, the struggle and envy. This is where he talks about, I was envious, I was jealous. Envy is, is a powerful response. And it's a great temptation that we all face. It's not one we talk about a lot, but envy shows up in this psalm in a pronounced way. Keller goes on to say, the power of envy is such that it made even the Garden of Eden feel like it wasn't enough. That no matter what we have, we're looking and thinking we're missing out. Especially when we see the dealings of others. So Asaph is feeling the lack and he turns in verse 4 to a prolonged struggle with God out of view. He is struggling with God out of view. I want you to notice something, verses 4 through 12, and we were counting this up at youth camp. Notice how many times Asaph refers to them, the wicked, they or there, he refers to them 17 times. And in those same span of verses, he only refers to God one time. And he's actually quoting the wicked, so it's not like in a positive way. He is struggling with God out of view because it looks like the wicked are prospering. Verse 4, for they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. He's like, you know, the wicked don't seem to have problems. And they seem handsome and pretty. Verse 5, they are not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. Somehow, the wicked are riding above the fray. The IRS doesn't audit them, but he, they audit you and me. They... They didn't catch COVID. The hurricane came through, blew the tree on your house. No trees fell on their house. That's what he's struggling with. They're not in trouble. Verse 6, he says, Therefore pride is their necklace. 
Violence covers them as a garment. They're doing so well, they flaunt it. They take credit for it. And it seems to be leading them into more and more wickedness. And so Asaph is like, God, why aren't you stopping this? Why aren't you intervening? Why aren't you putting them in their place as they flaunt and as they talk? This is what he's struggling with. Verse 7, their eyes swell out through fatness. So they're not impoverished. They're not going hungry. No, they are living high on the hog. The rest of verse 7, it says, Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. I mean, this is really getting under Asaph's skin. They're boasting. They're threatening. They're belittling God. And he seems to be doing nothing about it. Verse 10, Therefore his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, How can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. And so he's watching the wicked prosper, seeming to prosper. God is not in his view, so it's just the wicked, and the wicked are looming large, and God is looming small, and Asaph is struggling with God out of view. And then in verses 13 through 16, Asaph then turns from reflecting on the prosperity of the wicked to reflecting on himself. In light of the wicked prospering, it seems that being living a godly life is pointless. So notice in verses 13 through 16, how many times Asaph refers to himself. He uses the word I or my 11 times. And he uses God's name once. Look at verse 13. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. You ever feel that way? That being godly, it's, it's pointless, it's fruitless. Verse 14, for all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. And so he, he's struggling by way of comparison because he's like, I'm stricken all the time. They're not stricken. My business is going under. Theirs seems to prosper through wickedness. I don't have a great relationship with my child. How come they seem to have fine relationships and yet they're not, they're not even acknowledging God? How is this possible? And so Asaph, he is worn out. Look at verse 16. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Envy is not the only cause in the Bible of why we might be weary, but it is certainly something to consider and to take to heart 
There are times that we weary ourselves as we become envious of others and bitter at God. And if you are struggling like this now, or if you are struggling in the future, it's a struggle that thrives with God out of you. God is absent from his calculations about the wicked. God is absent as he's thinking about himself. Why is this all happening? But then in verse 17, God comes into view. Look at verse 17. It's like everything comes into focus. He says in verse 16 again, when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. The sanctuary refers to the tabernacle or the temple. It refers to God's people gathered in worship with God in views with God in view he now discerns the bigger picture he discerns it says he discerns their end what happens to the wicked in this life is not the whole story there is indeed a life to come And so as he opened the psalm emphatically, saying the word truly, truly God is good to Israel. In verse 18, he opens with this same emphatic truly. He says in verse 18, truly, truly, you have set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept Away utterly by tears like a dream when one awakes. O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. The wicked are not secure. They may at times seem to be prospering. They might seem to live above the fray, above the dangers of this ice, but the way God talks about them is they are set on slippery places. And when I hear that, I think thin ice. You know, they're boasting, hey, look at me. I'm on the thin ice. Look at me. I'm fine. I'm not going to fall through. And he says, Lord, you've set them in slippery places, truly Truly, they will fall to ruin and it will happen suddenly. And when it says that the Lord despised them as phantoms, this is kind of the idea, and you're familiar with this, where when you're dreaming, something seems very real. Like that pack of dogs that's chasing after me seems very real while I'm sleeping. But the moment I awake, it's like there's both relief that I'm not being chased by a pack of dogs. But there's also like, that's, that's silly. That's gone. It's not real. It was a figment. It's, and the word used here is a phantom. It's to realize at that moment, as the Lord brings them into judgment, that it was all like a dream. It was that real. Their prosperity is, that, is really no prosperity at all. He says it's like a dream when one awakes. And so this is what Asaph now realizes about the wicked 
as God comes into view, as he's gathering with the people of God and he's extolling the greatness of God and he realizes things come into focus and then his own heart comes into focus. Look at verse 21. He says, when my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. This is a confession of sin. Asaph was bitter. He was bitter at God. And he adds this word. He says, I was brutish. Other versions translate that. I was stupid. I was senseless. Lord, it was so foolish of me to call into question your wisdom, your goodness, your power, as the, the wicked loomed large in my eyes, and you loom small. That was so foolish of me to question your goodness. And so with God in view, he sees his own heart with greater clarity, and he repents. And then here's what satisfies him. Verse 23. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. So the wicked are on thin ice. They're about to fall through suddenly and perish. And Asaph says, I am continually with the Lord. Always. Unceasing. Never a moment I'm not with the Lord. I'm continually with you. You hold my right hand. And you just get this picture. The Lord holding us through everything that we're stricken by, all the troubles that we face in life are faced with God holding us and his presence continually with us. And then verse 24, he says, you guide me with your counsel and afterward you will receive me to glory. So he's talking about God's upholding hand and God's presence, his nearness. And then he says, I'm guided. God is God is not just here off to the side. He's, he's guiding us in life and He's bringing us, it says afterward, we're going to be received into His presence. The, the wicked have none of this. They have only sudden judgment, sudden rejection, and yet we are going to have this forever reception, received into glory. Oh church, it is so good to have the bigger picture of our God being truly good to His people. It is so good to have God so large and so dominating in our view because we see things as they really are. You know, one writer, Sinclair Ferguson, he was like, he, he compared this, he's like, it's like Asaph was looking through the wrong end of the telescope and he turned it around. It's like, God's huge! I love that. We see things as they really are rather than just this, this little sliver of what's going on in the world where it's so easy to blame God 
and to envy others. But notice in this verse here, I believe this is verse 24. Notice that this is not all realized right now for Asaph. He uses the word afterward. That's a key word. Afterward. Not, it's not now that all of this, all of this reception into glory takes place and the wicked are perished. He says, afterward you will receive us to glory. Charles Spurgeon commented on this. He says, this, there is where your chief possession lies, locked up in that which is marked afterward. Not today, possibly not tomorrow, but afterward is your inheritance. And that's a good word for us this morning, especially across our congregation. I'm sure many of you have experienced great loss, great disappointment, things not happening in this life the way that you would hope. That's because our inheritance is kept And it's marked afterward. And so as we anticipate this afterward, which is very sure, it's not just a a blank hope, God in all of His goodness now can be so satisfying. This is where Asaph goes. Verse 25. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth, nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. God is it. God is the treasure above all treasures. We were wired to find satisfaction in the goodness of God. And what guards us against the envy of the wicked, what guards us against bitterness toward God, Him allowing the wicked to prosper, what guards us is knowing God as our portion. I love that word, my portion. It it means possession or treasure. It's the word that's used of when a spoil of war is divided up. It's like like pirate's booty. The Lord is my forever treasure. If I have Him, I have everything I need. What else could I possibly need? What else could I possibly desire? I've got Him. I've got the Lord. And notice throughout this psalm, Nothing is actually changing in his circumstance. The wicked all all of a sudden aren't like not prospering. They're not falling through that thin ice in this psalm. But he's finding himself so satisfied knowing the bigness of God and who God is for him, both now and afterward. And so he summarizes his struggle and conclusion there in verses 27 and 28. He says, behold, for behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. 
But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. So Asaph had begun by envying the wicked, and yet he concludes with the bigger picture, with God in view. He says the wicked will perish. And Asaph had begun feeling like, you know, being godly, living for God was all in vain. But now he concludes, no, 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 it is good. It is good for me to be near God. It is good. He settled it. The Lord is his covenant God. And he says, I've made the Lord my refuge. It is good to be near to God. All who are far from him will perish. And so at youth camp, one of the things we do is we take a passage. We took this passage and we spent about 20 minutes just quietly studying it, reading it, rereading it together. And then we come together and talk about it. And one of the things I was struck with is on Thursday afternoon, I was struck by verse 27 just in a fresh way. Because it says, those who are far from you shall perish. And I was just freshly affected that most of my life I had been far from the Lord. And I'm sure that's true of every person. When you go back to before Christ, we were far from him. And this verse warns those who are far from him shall surely perish. The second part of that verse, it says, those who are unfaithful to you, you put an end to everyone. To everyone who is unfaithful to you. And I'm thinking, I was unfaithful to the Lord. How, how is this? That I didn't perish. That you didn't perish that there's a way for unfaithful ones to become near, for those who are far off to be brought near. You know, if we struggle with why God allows good things to happen to bad people, we have a massive problem with the heart of the gospel. That is the gospel. Good things happen to bad people. God takes those who are far from Him, who ought to perish, and He brings them near. And He takes His Son, who is perfect, His Son, who is holy, His Son, who is righteous and good, who is never bitter in His heart toward God, who never questioned the goodness of God, and He puts all of our sin on Him. To struggle with why God allows allows good things to happen to bad people. We have to struggle with the gospel. And we can't struggle with the gospel because this is the heart of it. God has made a way. God has made a way for sinners not to perish. He's made a way for people who are far off to be brought near. And He's done it through the perfect life and the substitutionary death. All of the furious wrath that was mine on Him. And so that we can come to know in, in first person what it is to know God is truly good to His people. 
And he's good to those who are not his people by making them his people. Jesus was treated like he was the wicked one so that we might become the righteousness of God. And so that we could say with verse 28, it is good to be near God. And for some of us, we don't have to remember back that far and we don't have to stretch our memory to remember what it was like not to be near God, to be able to say, oh, I have made the Lord my refuge. And today, if you are not yet trusting in Jesus Christ, you are far from him. You are far from God. There's none amount, no amount of good works that can bring you near. There's no amount of trying and effort Trusting in Jesus alone is how you make the Lord your refuge. Asaph says, I've made the Lord my refuge. You must make the Lord your hiding place, his righteousness. But church, this is where we come. And this is where we become assured. And this is where it looms large for us, the goodness of God. Titus 3 puts it this way. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness And loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy. By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Precious children in His eyes. So we were once in that category of the wicked. We were once on that thin ice destined to perish suddenly. Maybe we even thought we were prospering. But God awoke us to that danger and He made it a way for us to know His love and His goodness. It says when the goodness of God appeared, it appeared in a person. It appeared in Jesus. And He appeared so that He might become our treasure forever. And so what Asaph said at the beginning of Psalm 71 stands at the end. Truly, truly, God is good to His people. God is good all the time, and it is the utmost folly for us to try to figure things out or try to to think about life with God out of view. But He invites us to come together like this. He invites us to praise Him, to lift up His name, and in so doing, we get perspective and joy, and contentment, and peace. 
as we know the goodness of God, God being our refuge. If I can invite the band to return. So we're going to sing yet again of his redeeming love. You know, Asaph, he didn't just go through this progression on his own. Verse 17 is that turning point, and it's because he went somewhere. It says he went into the sanctuary of God. You know, church, one of the reasons I come to church each week is not just because I'm a pastor. I need perspective of being in the, among the people of God. I need these reminders and these songs and these verses and God's greatness lifted up afresh, lest I become jealous and envious and bitter. And so this is a, a part, a means of grace to impart to us this eternal perspective. You need it. I need it. And so I want to encourage us as we come together, we're coming to get our perspective renewed for God to loom large. Hebrews 10 encourages us not to forsake meeting together, assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as we see afterward approaching, the day approaching. And so let us stir one another up with the goodness of God. Let us use our gathering to stir one another up towards love and good deeds. He is worthy and he is good. Truly, truly God is good to his people. Let's pray. Lord, I do pray that this, that we have seen over these many days as youth and chaperones and what we are able to see together as a church, Lord, would thrill our heart. God is it. You are it. Our portion, our treasure, our God. And I pray, Lord, for any who are far off or any that are struggling, struggling in bitterness toward you, having trouble understanding how can God be good? Lord, I pray you would continue to minister to our hearts and apply your word in power that these truths would indeed thrill us. We thank you. Thank you, Lord, for these last days with the youth. I pray you would write these things on their heart, Lord. And thank you for, as a church today, that we get to behold your goodness together. It is your great name we praise. Amen.